Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Studying Media Critically, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Gummo Clare, and today I'm joined by Gavin Muller, who's a lecturer in media studies at the University of Amsterdam. We'll be talking about his book, the excellently titled Breaking Things at Work, The Luddites Were Right, about why you hate your job, published in 2021. Gavin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I guess it might make sense uh, to start if you could talk a bit about your academic and professional background and what drew you to writing this book. Sure. Um, I, I guess I pinged around a bit um, uh, in my, my studies. I started in English. I uh, did my master's degree um, in popular culture studies, where I did an ethnography on Detroit DJs, um, strangely enough. And then um, my PhD in cultural studies at George Mason University was very uh, heavily emphasized sort of critical and cultural theory um, and I, a lot of Marxist theory um, uh, I read quite a lot of that um, in my studies there. Um, but I think in addition to sort of my formal education, um, the work in this book was also a kind of product of um, the sort of time period in, in which I was I began my studies. I started my PhD in 2009, uh, so just in the wake of the great financial crisis. Uh, and I sort of made up my mind that, you know, one thing I needed to do with the time I was given to, uh, to, to study was to figure out just exactly what had happened uh, and, 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 and how, how, how capitalism worked as a system. Um, and that was, I felt like that was a good use of my time at that point. And then, of course, a couple of years later, uh, you had um, the Occupy movement and um, what I think is fair to say is sort of widespread uh, sort of politicization of people my age and uh, people uh, around me and uh, that I was having conversations with, a renewed interest in um, talking about theory, but also talking about theory from a political direction um, and really thinking about uh, not only how things worked, but how we might intervene in these kinds of things. Um, and I, so I think that, that this book uh, was is really as much, if not more, a product of um, those kinds of conversations that I was having um, in, in a sort of more of a political direction uh, than, than my, actually, my actual academic work. And that kind of comes through, I think, quite well in the book itself, which is uh, very well researched, but it has a kind of polemical bent to it as well and seems like a, a practical piece of writing as, as much as anything else. So turning to the book, I guess a good place for us to start would be with how you're trying to reframe Luddism as distinct from its everyday use, where it's kind of a synonym for technophobia. So who were the Luddites and, and what is Luddism? Yeah, Luddites were um, a, a kind of uh, a, a radical movement uh, with its core base in uh, weavers and other people in the textile industry in the early 19th century in uh, the north and midlands of England. Uh, they were uh, sort of uh, tightly knit communities of craftspeople and uh, 
immediately uh, upon uh, the introduction of new technologies into their trade uh, kind of sprang into action. These technologies were going to, such as the gig mill and the stocking frame, were going to kind of obviate the necessity of a lot of their skills and abilities and uh, sort of degrade the working conditions of their of their trade. Um, and they immediately kind of apprehended that um, and, and uh, realized that if they didn't take action uh, to prevent the introduction of the machines, um, or at least to get them introduced on their own terms, that their livelihoods would be destroyed along with their communities. Um, and so uh, they began actually uh, through uh, legal channels because they, by law, uh, they were supposed to be able to control the textile trade. So they said, you know, wrote letters to Parliament and said, "Hey, you know, we, we don't approve of these machines, and you know, we're we're trying to follow the rules." And that didn't really uh, go anywhere. So uh, eventually, they became more and more radical in their activity to the point where they were conducting. Uh, you know, uh, midnight raids on uh, factories that were deploying the machines, um, breaking into them and smashing them up. And at its height, they were conducting a raid every night. Um, and so this finally did get the attention of uh, Parliament, which sent in a massive military force to crush the insurgency, right? The, the, the fear was that it would... Uh, spill over, the cause would spill over not to just machines, but to like a sort of wider political challenge um, of, of which there were many uh, at the time in the British Empire. Um, and so um, the Luddite Rebellion was eventually rolled up, though not without some difficulty. The Luddites were had a kind of remarkable solidarity and it was very hard to get them to uh, sort of inform on one another, even if they captured people that they knew were part of um, part of the insurgency, um, and so um, this uh, this rebellion taking place at the you know the dawn essentially of the industrial revolution means that kind of in retrospect you look back and you say oh well these were these were just kind of irrational outbursts against a kind of inevitable progress right like they they really had no chance to to be successful um, they didn't really understand the stakes of what they were doing uh, and how uh, and how kind of technology and capitalism work together right and so they so they so to be a Luddite becomes sort of this uh, pejorative, uh, as you said, a kind of knee-jerk technophobia, right? You're just, oh, I hate technology. I'm a Luddite. I just uh, want to maintain sort of the old primitive ways. Um, and I think this is not a very good way to understand who the Luddites were and what they were trying to do. I mean, m many of these these weavers were actually skilled workers, right? They used technology. They understood technology. Uh, they weren't necessarily opposed to it. And what they were opposed to was the specific deployment of technology that would uh, undermine their livelihoods and upend their communities, uh, degrade their work, and and you know kind of uh, crush them, which is actually what happened. Right, these communities fall on uh, tremendous poverty for the next couple generations uh, in the in the after the the, the Luddite rebellion. Um, 
And so I think that a better way to understand what they're doing is, is conducting, doing something quite rational, right? Recognizing that technologies in this case is being used uh, in a political way. It's being used uh, precisely to uh, undermine their kind of base of power uh, and, and uh, to restructure their trade so that they have less control over it uh, and to decimate their communities. And so in, in that sense, to, to kind of fight back against those um, those technologies, which are which are kind of weapons in this battle, to me seems actually quite rational. And so, I, I what I would like to retain from this is is not not a knee jerk technophobia, but what I would characterize as a critical perspective, really understanding. You know, all right, a new technology is introduced. You know, is this? We don't have to automatically acquiesce to this. Uh, we don't have to chalk it up to inevitable progress. We need to assess. You know, what are the actual effects going to be? And if we deem them to be contrary to our interests or to our values, then we have every right to oppose and to, to oppose the introduction of that technology and to mobilize uh, in our interests to oppose that. And so, to me, that is actually. Um, a, a really uh, kind of powerful and, and to me a relevant lesson that we can take from from the Luddite Rebellion. So I, I'd imagine that you first started the book, as you touched on in your introduction, you know, around the period after the financial crash and in the kind of earlier part of the 2010s, there was, I think, a more benevolent attitude towards technology and its potential across the right and the left including among kind of post-capitalist left theorists who you mentioned in the book, like uh, Michael Hart and Antonio Negri, Nick Cernicek and others. So there's been a bit of a tech clash since uh, across the left and the right, which you touch on. What would you say differentiates your kind of Marxist ledism from both other left tech criticism and more mainstream tech critical accounts as well? Yeah, so I think this, this you're absolutely right. This is like uh, something that really did kind of motivate me in this uh, kind of course of research and writing was to 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 engage with this kind of idea that you know we were we were progressing towards some sort of post work uh, world that where um, you know capitalism wouldn't even function purely by virtue of automation and and other kinds of advanced technologies. It seemed to me to to, uh, to to be, uh, I had a I had a number of kind of problems with that, and, and for one, it didn't really seem to um, really reckon with you know what it would what it what to my understanding it would take to to move to a kind of post capitalist world, which would be a, a kind of organized political challenge, right? Not some kind of um, you know evolutionary development. Um, so that was something that I wanted to kind of engage with and to say that maybe these technologies are not actually advancing our interests. Maybe they're actually Actually, um, you know, even uh, if they are sort of restructuring work or, or um, you know, getting rid of jobs, which I think that even that claim is kind of questionable. Even if that is the case, uh, I think that what we need to also recognize is it's also potentially disrupting our ability to organize ourselves to make that kind of political challenge. So that's um, kind of the intervention I wanted to make. Um, within sort of Marxist and post-Marxist thinking about 
the politics of technology. Um, as far as like a general tech clash, yeah, I mean, um, I teach in media studies and it's, it's, you really do see um, a kind of both in the sort of general, you know, uh, quote unquote discourse, but also even among how young people sort of apprehend uh, technologies and social media and these kinds of things. Um, a real disenchantment, right? Um, which was not necessarily the case around, uh, you know, 10 years ago when, you know, Twitter and Facebook were credited with starting revolutions. Um, now they're credited with, you know, um, having Donald Trump win the presidency and having the UK leave the EU and, and these kinds of um, unexpected um, political disasters uh, from the point of view of, of sort of the dominant powers. Um, so, um, and there is a lot of writing and a lot of discussion of this, but I think th- what I wanted to do was was to approach it from a Marxist perspective, which to me is a is a is a kind of thinking about how technology is embedded in a larger social and economic system. You have a lot of stuff out there about how um, you know social media ruins our conversations, uh, separates us from our essential being. Uh, you know, if you go into, uh, I like to watch a lot of old music on YouTube, uh, which I suppose shows my age. But when I read the comments, it's it's actually people like my students age, you know, people in their 20s who are like incredibly nostalgic for, you know, the 90s, you know, people not having phones and being in the moment, right, kind of cliches, um, which is just sort of remarkable to me. I mean, I, I, I remember my 20s. They don't seem that long ago to me. And I was not extremely nostalgic for a prior era at that point. Um, but uh, anyway, the the point is that this kind of, um, this sort of, uh, I don't, you know, this kind of romantic nostalgia, I think, is, is sort of truncated kind of critique uh, compared to the, what I would want people to do, which is I don't think we need to think about it in terms of we're being you know, separated from some sort of essential quality or, or, or we're being prevented from like authentic human contact and communication. Um, I think that, you know, I well, I just don't think that I think that you know I can be a vulgar sort of media studies person here. You know, our our communication and our interaction and how we conceptualize even our, ourselves is always going to be implicated with with technologies of of the time. I think the better way, or the 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 a more, more rigorous uh, way, and, and a way that leads to. Uh, kind of the politics that I'm interested in is to think about how these technologies are are part of a sort of system of capitalism um, geared around um, turning our time into value, um, into exploiting us in various ways, and into uh, undermining our ability to, again, to uh, collectively uh, organize ourselves to insist or demand on certain kinds of changes. So to me, thinking about technology is not about, uh, you know, a threat to my humanity. I think we, we need to see it um, on a kind of terrain of class struggle, right? Of, uh, of, of, of conflict between uh, people who own the means of production and the people that, that don't um, and are, are subjected to it. And to me, that will lead to, I think, a better kind of understanding of what technology is actually doing. Uh, and also um, uh, the kind of politics that I would like to see, where we're not so concerned with um, 
having no phones and being in the moment, but we're concerned in having a world where we're not uh, we're not being exploited. We're not uh, you know engaged in in meaningless and degrading forms of of labor and exertion for the benefit of others rather than ourselves. Um, and so that's. Um, another kind of motivation there. And I think, um, you know, now that the pendulum is sort of swung into this more techno um, pessimistic uh, direction, I'm, I'm hoping that um, maybe people who are inclined in that direction will, will see a reason to think about Marxism and the history of the socialist movement um, in in a in a way that it that's different than how it's presented because it often is and I would say fairly um, fairly presented this way as as a fairly technologically determinist and technologically optimistic uh, uh, kind of analysis and kind of politics and I think there's another way to to understand Marxism and that's what I tried to uh, kind of articulate in this book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you dev- devote quite a lot of space to talking about the earliest roots of technological determinism in the Marxist tradition, going back to the Second International and then tracing a, a line from there all the way to the present. Um, it's interesting you touched on kind of romantic critiques of technology and trying to move away from that, because I figure that you align some of the early kind of luddish tendencies with is actually William Morris, who obviously has romantic tendencies in his thought. But what you touch on there, I think this is in chapter two, is about Luddite activity being concerned about the quality of work and working culture rather than simply the quantity of working hours, which is what other theorists focus on. I mean, I, ho- I hope I'm reading that right, but could, could you expand on that slightly? Yeah, absolutely. And and you're, you're, you're totally right. He's, he's, he's very much inflected by uh, a, a kind of romantic and, and his, the people he was influenced by even more so, I would say. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I'll confess, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I, I have a, a passing uh, romantic flights of fancy from time to time as well. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you, you know, this is exactly what I think is really interesting about William Morris. Right? Is he's he's a socialist. He's a he's a Marxist, which is fairly unusual. Uh, in the 19th century, in the in the United Kingdom, right, uh, someone who's who's reading Marx and and taking it seriously, um, and thinking about how to how to how to do socialist politics from that perspective, um, and he um, he he is engaged, I would say, in, in very similar kinds of debates as as, as some of the ones that I, I was engaged in. Right, he's saying, look, you know, if we want to really think about production and work, um, we have to think about it, the content of of what we're doing. He was someone who was also kind of a skilled craftsperson. To some extent, you know, he was pretty privileged and and, uh, and this was a kind of hobby for him, but it was something he took very seriously. The idea of design, the idea of of, of not just producing thing, things, but producing beautiful things. Um, and he thought that there was a kind of uh, a benefit from from being engaged in that kind of work. And, and I'm inclined to agree, you know, I've, I've worked a lot of jobs and, and not all of them have been very nice jobs or very fun jobs. Uh, you know, there have been, you know, sort of, you know, according to the, the classification, low skill jobs, right? And at the same time, I think that there were always moments where you could find, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, 
through resisting, you know, what you were supposed to be doing, uh, moments to be creative or to have fun or to actually take some kind of interest in what you're doing, um, to have some kind of uh, creative input into it. Um, that was fulfilling, but also I think gave you a, gives a, a kind of uh, orientation towards work where you can actually see the value of having some kind of control, having some kind of say and autonomy uh, over what you're doing. And to me, this is um, something that, that William Morris is also prioritizing. He says, you know, most of the things that, that you're going to make in an industrial system will be, will be useless. They'll be waste. They won't even be worth, um, you know, they'll be so low quality, they won't even be worth the kind of productive process that, that it took to make them. And instead, a better way to, re to reduce drudgery is not to just try to, you know, improve technology to obviate the need for, uh, for human labor, but to actually have a sort of, uh, you know, what he called worthy work, um, you know, the forms of work that allowed for uh, the pleasures of creativity, the pleasures of learning new skills, um, the feeling of of um, autonomy and independence that that would generate, um, the pleasures of sharing these kind of skills and abilities with other people, which he thought was, uh, you know, a, a powerful kind of bond between people. Um, and and I, to me, that's a very compelling way to think about it, right? Um, to think about the world of work. Um, and, and because ultimately, I don't think that you're going, we're going to have some kind of post-work world. We're not going to have a world where machines do everything for us. Even if, if, if it were possible, I'm not sure it would be desirable, but I don't think it's, it's going to be possible anytime soon. So we're looking at the future. A future is uh, a future where we're working, where we're doing things. Um, it's quite possible. And I would, I would, say I agree that there's quite a lot that we don't need to be doing, right? There's quite a lot of, uh, of, of what I would say worthless work that happens. But I think it, it would be, you know, identifying those forms of work that are essential, that are necessary, that are good, uh, and that should continue and thinking about how to uh, make that work dignified and, and the, the people that do it have a sort of uh, freedom uh, over their own activity. Um, to me, that is a, a much more interesting and relevant kind of project than uh, anticipating how, you know, entire sectors of work are, are going to be taken over by robots. And so we'll have to spend our time um, playing video games or something like that. I, I think that's, uh, to me, that's not a very realistic or, or, or relevant kind of vision. No, definitely. And um that notion of good work, which you anchor towards the beginning of the book through the discussion of Morris, comes out in really interesting places throughout the book, particularly in your discussion of sabotage. And I, I found it really fascinating, your discussion of the unionists, the members of the industrial workers of the world, and how they framed sabotage in the 1910s in a way that might even include actually producing better food. Uh, which I just found so, you know, such a kind of mind-expanding concept of sabotage. Could could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So there were um, the, the the industrial workers of the world, or the Wobblies, who still still around in a kind of vestigial form, but at their peak, they were really uh, interesting and vibrant. 
uh, uh, Marxist, mostly American Marxist kind of movement. Uh, and they produced um, a few pamphlets uh, in the early 20th century around sabotage. And uh, I found these really quite fascinating because, of course, when we hear sabotage, we think, yes, breaking things, destroying things, disrupting things. Uh, but they had this very capacious understanding of sabotage. And it really goes to how, um, to, 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 to me, it really struck me how um, quite uh, adept these sort of uh, wobbly theorists were at really understanding the classed nature of social phenomena. So, you know, they're saying sabotage is if we if we interpret it not as just destruction, if we interpret it as taking place on a field of class struggle of diametrically opposed interests between bosses and workers, then what we see is sabotage is anything that interferes with capital accumulation. Um, and so they kind of uh, play around with this concept a bit and they say, well, you know, uh, sure, we can sabotage production by breaking a machine or something like that. But we could also think about how the capitalists themselves sabotage uh, their own products, right? By uh, producing, uh, for instance, uh, you know, uh, food that's that's already spoiled, right? Or, or, or poisoned or damaged uh, in some way, right? Um, or um, as you mentioned, they say, well, you know, what if we thought of, uh, if we think of sabotage in this class nature, we could actually see that by by spending more time and spending, you know, higher, uh, more, more, uh, higher quality materials on producing better goods. That's a kind of sabotage of capitalist profits, right? They were really kind of like laser focused on like any sort of little edge you can get in this like never ending class struggle. Um, you know, like let's, let's take that on board and, and really try to incorporate it into what we're doing. So yeah, any, anything that, that kind of saps the profits, right. Could be, a valuable tool of struggle, and that could include, you know, creating better goods than than what the companies at the time wanted to do. Right? That's a major way you increase profits. It's not that you, uh, you're, you're, you know, y y things that get labeled efficiency is often at the expense of the the finished good, um, and particularly uh, at, at that point in time. So yeah, it was a very just very. Um, uh, yeah, generative to read these kind of pamphlets, this, these these sort of worker militants who had this very creative notion of of what sabotage could mean, um, and and basically how you might leverage your position in a productive process to um, attack the ability of bosses to sort of control workers and to profit off of production in in a variety of different ways. And to me, this is uh, really interesting because. I think we are at a moment where where we need to do a kind of similar sort of thought experiments where we're we're really thinking creatively about uh, what kind of tactics um, we can draw upon and uh, generalize and organize and uh, in in this kind of of struggle. I think we, 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 uh, you know, part of what was so intellectually productive about this post-crisis moment for me, it was that there was a lull in that kind of thinking. And all of a sudden, many, many options seemed the, to be on the table. Um, and a lot of history that, that wasn't um, well understood anymore suddenly became really relevant. And I think, the, think the, this wobbly history was, was one of those.
Yeah, absolutely. And and the Wobblies, uh, as they appear in your book, is one example of um, your use of, as you say, theory from worker militants. And you, I think, draw probably more heavily on on the product of workers' inquiry and and yeah, kind of organic study from the ground up than you do on. Um, kind of conventional thought leaders within, that's a horrible term, but thought leaders within uh, the left. Um, and I think that connects to your focus on class composition and the relationship it has with uh, Luddism. So for those not initiated in kind of autonomist theory, myself included, could you explain class composition and how it connects to, to Luddism? Sure, sure. So um, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like one kind of... Um, thread that runs through the book is there's a sort of divergence between a lot of the official leadership in the workers movement and the socialist movement and how they understood technology and then how the people actually struggling at the point of production, uh, their kind of perspective on it. Um, and there's a kind of disjuncture there. And I'm really interested in recovering uh, both the workers themselves, but also the kinds of theorists who I think were a little bit uh, closer to those struggles. And and this is, I'm not the first person with this idea, of course. This is something that runs through, you know, it's just kind of a prerogative really within, within Marxist theory. Um, but I think that um, one place where this was done really in a really interesting uh, uh, and, 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 and ex- extremely productive way was this sort of uh, post-war um, Italian Marxist theorization um, where people who were also themselves dissatisfied with the the official uh, uh, Marxist organizations, the trade unions and the parties, it felt detached from what the workers were doing um, and and how the workers were struggling. And so they said, well, you know, the first step in really figuring out our situation is we have to understand who these workers are and what they're doing and what they're kind of uh, organizational forms are taking. Um, and so we need to uh, research this um, first and foremost. Um, and what they kind of come up with is this idea that you can't just look at someone's job and really say, oh, yes, this is a working class person. And uh, because they work in a factory and they make a wage, and therefore they're going to have um, a certain kind of politics. And, um, you know, because the theory teaches us that, and we're going to have to, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll appeal to that and shape that and, and start from there. Um, they said, it's, it's, you know, you can't really make that assumption. The class in a Marxist sense is an antagonistic relationship. So you have to look for, actual antagonism. You have to look for the struggles that are already happening. And what they discovered in the factories was a, uh, was forms of struggles that were sort of not really being registered by uh, the kind of uh, official organs of the workers' movement. Um, they said, well, a lot of these workers are just not doing work, right? And that seems to a lot of socialists and communists at the time, like they're not really, you know, they're not really participating. They're not really being political in in the way that they're supposed to be, right? Um, but they said, no, this is actually a, a new form that this polit that this that this uh, kind of antagonistic politics is taking, and we need to understand that. We need to understand uh, how they're linking with one another to conduct these kinds of activities, and in that sense, we need to really rethink what we understand by class. We need to. Really Really think about not just class as a position in production, but class as a position in class struggle, right? And in the in the forms that class struggle takes. And so, to me, this is a really 
crucial. I think this is still crucial for anyone who wants to engage in sort of class-based politics is to say class is not just a sociological category and you can just automatically identify like certain demographics who, you know, should by virtue of the books you've read, like share your politics, right? Um, instead, what you need to do is you need to actually take these people seriously as as actors, as people who actually know a lot more uh, than than even you, uh, and and have a, quite a lot uh, to to teach you about what struggles are actually going on um, in this current moment, and uh, and and how and, and your role as a theorist is to apprehend that and to think about how these um, novel forms of struggle can can be sort of amplified or accelerated or or or, or boosted in various ways and lead to kind of more significant kinds of change. And so to me, this is this is actually a good way to understand the Luddites, right? It's very easy for us to say, well, they were kind of dumb. They These these technologies were actually going to, you know, give them more leisure eventually or something like that. Um, instead, what you can say is, well, these forms of struggle were actually a way that they kind of organized themselves, composed themselves as an antagonistic social formation. Uh, opposed to how capital was restructuring their industry. And so they were com- kind of composing themselves as a class. Um, and at the time, that's the way they compose themselves as a class. If they're, um, you know, largely in sort of pre-industrial settings, if they're mostly working from home, it's not going to look the same as a, a 20th century trade union um, or even a 20th century communist party or something of that nature. It's going to take a different kind of form by virtue of the, the the kind of work they're doing and the way that they're reproducing their lives at that that moment, but that doesn't mean that it's not a sort of valid form of class struggle. And to me, this is a, again, I just want to really emphasize this, like for for any for your listeners out there who are interested in in sort of. Um, uh, you know, Marxist theory from a political orientation or, or conducting kind of worker politics and class-based politics. That is really um, something that we really, uh, I think, even now, many people have been saying this. Some people have been doing a lot of really interesting work and workers' inquiry um, on contemporary forms of work. But we need quite a lot more to be done to really actually have an understanding of what work is and how, what people's relationship to it and what and how people are beginning to uh, to struggle and to understand themselves in this particular situation. Um, it's really, really kind of urgent. And so um, I, I don't know if that's like a huge appeal I make in the book, but it's absolutely a, a sort of um, a, a huge influence in, in, in how I approach, um, you know, the, the way I present the history in the book. Yeah, no, absolutely. Something that sprung to mind there, actually, um, when you were talking about, you know, the the recomposition or the changing uh, kind of class character of of workers in, in in relationship to technology was actually Mackenzie Walk's work on um, the hacker class, and I know that I think she's coming from quite a different relationship to technology, perhaps to you are, but it, it it sprung to mind particularly with your discussion of hackers later on in the book. Um, so you describe hackers as uh, kind of potentially high-tech Luddites, and especially with Luddish tendencies. And what I really liked was the idea of Luddite aesthetics later on in the book. Could you expand a little bit on, on, on that and how they might represent a form of kind of 21st century Luddism? Yeah, so I think this is, if you, if you think of... Luddism is not a technophobia, but as a kind of critical perspective on technology and, and people who are very 
careful and, and really understand the stakes of new technologies, then, then I think hackers and, 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 and other people um, in, in, in that kind of world of, of, of software development and um, are, are often quite, uh, quite, quite Luddite uh, in, their, in their orientation. Um, and I've, I've been validated actually since, since writing these things. I've talked to hackers and, and, and there's, a, there's a kind of um, pretty uh, a substantial sort of hacker scene in Europe where I'm based now and, and I've been gratified to, to have people agree, have, have people from that world agree with, with my perspectives here. But, but essentially, right, like if you're a hacker, right, you have, you value, part of, part of this whole culture is, is about the, having the ability to explore um, computer systems, to explore software, to understand how things work um, so that you can make things yourself, you can customize and, and do new things that you couldn't do before, right? Uh, gaining these new skills, right, and, and understanding how systems work. And you also can, um, and, and I think what they notice, right, at various points, um, and, and notably, I, I talk about the free software movement, um, which um, kind of rises in the, the 80s and, and, and into the 90s. Um, what these uh, sort of free software hackers recognize is that the way that software is trending is away from those values of being able to um, do things your own way, to have a lot of say over how your systems are running, and to be able to learn more about how things work. Uh, instead, what's happening is uh, software is becoming subject to copyright, um, and corporations such as Microsoft are, are claiming kind of exclusive domain over them. So you aren't able, you're, you know, the, the future is looming uh, where you won't be able to look at the code and understand how the machines work. And you certainly won't be able to borrow that code without running afoul uh, of, of the law. Uh, and so they mobilize to prevent this from happening and, and to preserve the ways uh, that they've become accustomed to um, in their approaches to, to software and to technology so that they can still Look at, so they, they create this kind of ecosystem of uh, alternative software licenses, alternatives to copyright that say, okay, you know, I make a program, I coded it by hand, so I have intellectual property rights, but I relinquish my intellectual property rights. And I say that anyone can look at my code, they can use my code, borrow pieces of it, they can adapt it, they can customize it, they can do whatever they'd like, but with the caveat that anything that they make also has to abide by those rules. And so it kind of creates this massive ecosystem of free and open source software. We won't get into the, the weeds of the distinction there. Um, but um, um, that is that actually ends up being a, a significant challenge to commercial software at the time, both on a political level, but also just because a lot of the software was much better because they weren't following the dictates of we need to lock people into proprietary environments and squeeze them for as much money as possible. They had alternative forms of values that they were trying to realize in, in their projects. And so I really see this as a kind of Luddite project, right, to, to prevent this kind of uh, where technology is going, uh, because it's going in a way that's going to reduce their autonomy, it's going to reduce their 
um, their ability to uh, reproduce their communities really as uh, as as they liked to do, uh, and it was something that was actually quite effective. And and uh, the success of free and open source software, even if you're not a programmer, even if you've never heard about it until just now, um, you probably know that you know being a programmer is one of the uh, better jobs that you can have. It has a huge degree of autonomy. The wages tend to be very high. You know, you can be this kind of digital nomad. Um, credentialing is not, is much less important than it is in a lot of other jobs. And all of that has to do with the way that free and open source software programmers preserved not just an ecosystem of, of programs that were free and open source, but also programming languages that were available for anyone to learn. We could have ended up in a world, and we still could end up in a world where every big corporation has their own programming language. And therefore, if you're a programmer for Microsoft or a programmer for Google, you're locked into that company. You can't go anywhere else. You can't do anything else with that, with that, with your skills. Um, and therefore, you have a lot less say over, over your job. Um, but we're not in that world. And, and to a large degree, we're not into that world because of the success of, of uh, this kind of, uh, you know, late 20th century Luddite movement as I characterize it. Yeah, and I think in that section, you also draw out really well um, as those those kind of ethics of, of hacking come into conflict with efforts to enclose, as you, as you kind of describe it, the, the internet, um, how contemporary efforts towards automation and then the um, rendering proprietary uh, of software, also how wildly inefficient lots of the things that are done under the banner of contemporary automation are, right? Like they not only don't serve the interests of consumers, um, they actively hinder the the usefulness of technology like you, you cite the john deere thing i think with john deere tractors yeah um that's, I, that whole section of the book is just uh yeah very striking um to to jump back slightly one thing that comes out in chapter three is how automation has kind of consistently also mapped onto social categories of distinction and mar marginalization. Uh, with this in mind, could you explain a bit how automation became a galvanizing issue in the politics of race and gender in the US during the kind of 60s to 70s? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you have um, already um, a kind of, you know, uh, mass movements based around um, anti-racism and feminism that are uh, articulated with other kinds of um, movements uh, opposed to um, all things, uh, the, the Vietnam War, uh, the capitalist system, you know, um, you know, uh, general sort of Cold War conformity and all of these kinds of things, a very vibrant and rich uh, sort of moment. Um, and so um, at this time, what you have is, is uh, the entry as well of people who had been locked out of the workforce. Um, and you have this really interesting um, document um, that uh, comes out, uh, the... Um, the uh, there there was this uh, fear of what they called uh, the, this kind of triple revolution, right? Um, that what what the world was seeing um, and what the world people who were who were concerned about um, and wanted to make radical change was that you had um, 
these three revolutions. One was the, this, uh, the, the spread of nuclear weapons. One was this kind of recognition of, of universal human rights. And one was the, the, the spread of automation. Um, and you have this uh, sort of uh, committee on the triple revolution, which I'll use your term from earlier, a bunch of sort of thought leaders of the time, you know, social, you know, sort of activists and um, professors and, and intellectuals and things like that. Um, that that sort of produce this letter and say, look, you know, what's going to happen here is a lot of the um, progress that's being made on um, on uh, you know very tentative progress on on sort of social issues will be undermined uh, by the advent of automation because this is going to kind of upend this labor market which is already which is you know people are just getting access to women and 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 uh, African Americans are just getting access to this, these job markets, and of course, the 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 um, introduction of automation will uh, hit the kind of uh, lowest tiers the hardest. The people that have the fewest protections, the the that have the least influence over the trade unions, um, that work in the lowest skilled positions, and that this will actually upend um, any uh, uh, and threaten any kind of progress to how to develop a more equal society, right? And so um, it's kind of forgotten now, but there was a huge concern um, in in this moment in the 1960s among um, you know, civil rights leaders, Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X uh, both wrote about automation. Um, James Boggs, who was a, a sort of um, uh, uh, auto worker and, and also a sort of um, a Marxist activist was also part of this kind of committee on the, tri- on the triple revolution. Um, and he, he also wrote a lot of really, um, really fascinating stuff about, um, work and technology of the time, um, and said, "Like if we don't if we don't address this in some way, you know, we're we're going to it's going to lead to to sort of catastrophe for 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 these people." Um, and uh, th- you know, this in some ways you can see that that was the case. Uh, the, you know, this this committee had a lot of good intentions, but of course, um, good intentions uh, don't always. Uh, sufficiently mitigate against the sort of imperatives of, of capital accumulation. Um, so, um, so they were effectively ignored. Uh, and what you do have is a restructuring of the workforce that does um, undermine and, and um, uh, the gains in the labor market that had been made by marginalized people. Um, and so you actually have a lot of um, kind of uh, black sociologists in the 70s who are talking about like, we're going to have um, massive sort of surplus populations who will have no function in production. And without any kind of function that in production, they'll be subject to all manner of violent racial oppression. Uh, and, uh, you know, to some, they weren't always correct on the details, but I think the thrust of that argument was was actually quite quite uh, quite prescient, right? Uh, in fact, that is one way to understand what happened in the '80s and '90s: is the people that were thrown out of production um, were uh, then thrown into prisons, um, and that is essentially how the U.S. Uh, uh, you know, addressed uh, that that recomposition of the workforce, um, and so I think that's uh, again, it's something to think about. You know, uh, rather are we are we if if technology is in fact 
restructuring work and 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 eroding jobs, then then you know that doesn't necessarily lead to, lead to happy outcomes, right? Um, th- this, in fact, might lead to uh, catastrophic outcomes um, if if we're not able to to mount a kind of uh, you know sufficient political challenge and and having good analysis and writing nice appeals to to politicians uh you know didn't work at this moment where you know uh, was a sort of high watermark for for politicians actually listening to social movements uh in in the united states uh had basically zero effect so i think that's something to really kind of uh take seriously right and also to take seriously the the fact that you had um uh, you know, civil rights leaders were well aware of this, right? They were un- they were really understood uh, the sort of politics of technology to to a degree that I think um, you know is is has not really been recognized. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I guess that's in terms of periodization leads us quite neatly from the huge changes wrought to production, industrial production by automation into the kind of 70s and the 80s where you move on to discuss the entry of computing into white-collar workplaces. Um, So how does this move of automation from kind of embodied physical labor to mental labor from, yeah, around the 70s onwards manifest itself? And how have office workers pushed back against the expansion of workplace control and surveillance? Yeah, um, I mean... I, I think a lot of people have seen Office Space, right? That's probably one of the best uh, sort of, uh, really one of the, the best like sort of politics of work film uh, in American cinema. Uh, so there is, and that's that's a, a film that really focuses on the sort of the alienation, uh, in, in, in alienation in a kind of existential sense um, of of what people felt in these environments. Um, one thing that was interesting to me, though, is that when an office work started being turned into something more computational, was um, the physical complaints uh, that people had uh, that they that they that this was something that they um, that was that was foregrounded far in advance of like this kind of empty useless feeling um, that office space focuses on. People are saying, "I'm hunched over my desk. I'm sitting all the time. I'm asked to hit lift heavy a- equipment. Um, my you know typing is is they didn't have the term for carpal tunnel at the time, but they they were absolutely describing that. And so so there was a real interest, right? In just as the the technology of the factory was sort of detrimental to the, the the physical health and constitution of the workers within the factory. Uh, a lot of people, and analysts at the time, looking at the automation of the office, noticed quite similar things. Like this is like physically degrading uh, this kind of work, um, which is in- interestingly not something that we we kind of uh, think about. In fact, the the film Office Space concludes with the solution to the alienation of of office life is to to become a construct worker to work with your hands right to have something physical and substantial uh, which is I, to, to my mind a sort of unsatisfying ending um, and also one that doesn't recognize the fact that office work itself is quite uh, uh, physically detrimental to the workers as well um, but um, one thing that I um, discovered in this research was this wonderful um, uh, you know, neo situationist zine that was produced uh, in the 80s and 90s in the mostly in the Bay Area called Processed World, 
which was um, a bunch of kind of uh, people who were who were experiencing uh, this this rise of compute computers, the early sort of tech industry, the the rhetoric behind it, and also the sort of uh, you know kind of palpable. Uh, you know, uh, phenomenological experience of these these kind of environments, um, and as uh, and and so they they wrote um, in in quite um, you know entertaining and, and often humorous ways um, about their experiences and also the ways that they kind of mobilized against those experiences. They they noted that computers uh, at the time were like quite easy to sabotage. It's very easy to 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 break them to slow them down. Uh, and, and particularly managers didn't really understand how they worked. So you, it was quite simple to just, you know, come up with a, with a, with a, a, a specious explanation for why your work didn't get done that day. Um, they also benefited from this kind of boom period where if they got caught, you know, sabotaging something or pulling a prank or, or just slacking off and they got fired, it was quite easy for them to just get another um, sort of office job somewhere else, which is maybe not the, the case that we're living through right now. Um, but I thought that this was a, such a um, really interesting kind of publication, something that I, I would love to see more of um, sort of on the left today, where you have this, um, you have really, um, you know, really, really concentrated kind of theoretical exposition of the of the nature of work, but it's also alongside sort of more humorous digressions, poetry, uh, sort of um, kind of collage and comics, um, and then and a really interesting kind of letters to the editors se- uh, section where they really wanted they were really intrigued by who would actually be reading these things that they were producing. Uh, when they started this this zine, they would just pass it out. Sometimes they would dress up in silly costumes and pass it out and sort of, you know, at, at, at rush hour, rush periods in, in sort of downtown San Francisco. And, um, but, and, and it sort of spread in this kind of word of mouth fashion. Um, and people would write in and say, you know, you've really given me a new sort of motivation to go to work so that I can kind of destroy it from the inside. Uh, or I'm just so happy that other people are feeling this way. It was a really interesting, um, you know, not just an interesting publication, but a kind of interesting social experiment and to say, um, what happens when we start talking about these things? In some ways, I think maybe the closest analog we have to something like Processed World today would maybe be something like um, the the anti-work subforum uh, subreddit, uh, where people are engaged in quite similar um, activities of of describing the the problems they face at work, finding solidarity with other people who are sympathetic, um, also sharing skills, uh, how to slack off or how to make extra money in simple ways. Um, you know, I'm I, one thing I've been looking at a lot recently um, is uh, now that we live in a work from home or this is becoming a, a, a quote new normal, as they say. Uh, well, what forms are are workers taking to resist? Um, or to to kind of uh, carve out some autonomy in the in this new work home work from home environment, and there's all sorts of uh, skill sharing, I would say, on ways to uh, keep your mouse moving. So you sort of trick the monitoring software, um, so you appear available and online, even if you're you know taking a nap. Um, how to work multiple jobs at once, uh, uh, so you make more income, right? Because a lot of these jobs, are, you know, if you can 
you know, just pure present, you can collect, you know, your $15 an hour or something. Why not do, do that twice? Um, so, so to me, that's uh, actually, I, I really, um, am interested in, in this, uh, in, in this kind of, um, Again, something that's not coming from sort of credentialed intellectuals such as myself, but people who are living and experiencing, and but also really thinking through these issues with a with a um, kind of remarkable sophistication and creativity um, to kind of um, um, apprehend and, and intervene in in these kind of unfair situations. Um, you know, if 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 we just live through this massive change in the world of work, I would hope that we see some some uh, where like a lot of people were uh, ho- treated just horribly, you know, subjected to um, exposure to dangerous, uh, dangerous disease. Uh, you know, I, I would hope we see some some real political movement um, on that. And I think we do in various ways. So I think there are some you know, interesting things going on there that really do remind me of, of uh, things like processed world. That's really heartening to hear. And I, I hadn't drawn the connection myself between the anti-work thing, but that, of course, is kind of in keeping. And I think as with much of kind of internet culture, it does seem to be uh, kind of teens and Generation Z who are leading the charge on that. I read a lot about kids kind of avoiding um, surveillance working, working from home things with lots of very, very interesting tactics that seem to be trickling upwards as well. Um, so... You touched there on the idea of kind of working multiple desk-based jobs and um, that kind of connects to what you move on to in, in towards the end of the book where uh, you see kind of via the internet the promise of full in- automation, but this is actually what Astra Taylor calls photomation, right? Um, uh, which is actually a kind of global diffusion of labor, which is something very different to what might, be experienced by kind of wealthy users in the global north. So could you talk a bit about what's going on behind the facade of automation in the kind of current moment? Actually, there's been a really nice uh, kind of book length investigation or, or synthesis of some of this that's come out since my book, um, uh, Phil Jones' uh, Work Without the Worker, um, where he really bears down on precisely this. I mean, you have you have a couple things going on. You have like products that brand themselves as uh, automated or artificial intelligence that are actually not right. That they're actually being, uh, uh, they're actually workers performing these tasks and the companies say that it's AI or automation because that is much more attractive for investment than saying that a bunch of, um, extremely exploited people in uh, call centers in the Philippines are actually doing quite a lot of this work. But even in situations where you do have kind of production of, uh, you know, maybe of something we might think of as a more authentic form of artificial intelligence where machines are kind of, uh, uh, you know, making uh, sort of decisions about, you know, where a car drives or, or how, how a system functions in other ways, um, how images are recognized. To create one of those kinds of uh, systems requires an immense amount of training, particularly if it's something like a car where uh, you don't have a lot of room for error, right? Error leads to uh, disaster, right? It leads to accidents and death, which uh, unfortunately is uh, is the reality of, of self-driving cars in this current moment. People, uh, it kills people. Um 
So to create, but to create one of these systems requires an immense amount of of what they call training data, uh, and to do this kind of training data, uh, you know, requires human activity, right? Human beings have to look at all of these images and say, well, this is a stop sign, this is a crosswalk. This is a bus, uh, so that and and they they have to do that thousands and thousands of times in, in the hope that the the car will eventually understand these patterns to the extent that it can drive without you know uh, in, without slamming into oncoming traffic. Um, and in fact, many of us have engaged in in these in training these systems. If you've ever done a CAPTCHA, right? If you've tried to log into a system and then it says, well, actually we need you to identify uh, these these images, right? Um, what you're doing is you're actually training, uh, in, in, in the case of CAPTCHA, it's, it's Google, you're training their uh, sort of machine vision technologies, right? And you're not being paid, you're not even being told what you're doing. And I think what, what you see here, right, is these kinds, the promise of these kind of fully automated systems, these art of, you know, computers does everything kind of system relies on, um, on uh, the, pro- the production of new forms of work that are incredibly uh, degraded, are um, in the case where people are doing this full time, are very poorly paid. Um, a lot of companies that rely on. So, you know, it would be great if just you and I, every time we wanted to watch a pirated television show and did a capture, that was enough for these companies, but it's not. So what they need to do is they need to pay hundreds of people to do this, you know, eight to 10 hours a day as their job. Um, and where they do that is they find, uh, and through the, through the miracle of, of digital technology, uh, they're able to kind of drop um, one uh, like a, a, a workplace in practically anywhere at this point, and so they do. They drop them into uh, the slums of Nairobi. They're, they put them in refugee camps, right? And this is this is said to be some kind of like wonderful opportunity for people who are you know fleeing. Uh, conflict and are stuck in a refugee camp. Well, they can they can earn some money, you know, training training these cars for a pittance. Uh, I think it's it's insulting, really, uh, to to any you know uh, fair thinking person that this is some kind of wonderful opportunity. This is the, you know this is actually the height of of sort of exploitation and 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 really uh, taking advantage of people who are in extremely unfortunate situations. Uh, and that is the reality. Of artificial intelligence, there is no magical computer does it automatically. It always is going to rely on these forms of, of degraded kind of data processing and data entry, um, and all the problems that emerge uh, uh, from from that point on. We're always looking at an extremely um, unequal and often geographically uneven uh, relations of work uh, at the heart of these systems, even if they work as advertised, which frequently they don't. No, I mean, absolutely. Um, so I'll just ask you one more question because you've been you've been very generous with your time. But the, so the book ends with a, a call to integrate Luddism into kind of other vital left move, movements and causes. And you do a better job than a lot of left texts do in providing a kind of vaguely uplifting end to the book. Um, so in this conclusion, you lay out the ways that Luddism is positive and propositional rather than atavistic or technophobic in, in the ways that we've discussed. Could you lay out this kind of positive direction and how it articulates 
articulates with uh, struggles around degrowth and the climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, one thing, you know, I think that um, degrowth is really interesting to me, right? Because it, what it's, uh, you, to, first of all, degrowth is, is necessarily anti-capitalist. Uh, you know, there's debate over how Marxist it is, I guess, but, but you, without growth, you don't have capitalism, right? And so what, what, um, where, where degrowth sort of aligns with Luddism is the questioning of productivity at all costs, right? The Luddites said, we don't, we are opposed to a certain level of productivity. William Moore says, we're, we're opposed, says, said, we're up. I'm opposed to a certain level of, of of sort of technological efficiency if it degrades the quality of work, right? There are other values at stake in producing than maximizing production. And I think that this is something really powerful, a very simple point, but very sort of uh, powerfully centered uh, by, by degrowth. And I think the other thing to me that, that I, I do find degrowth sort of um, – uh, amenable to a Marxist approach is to me the the sort of uh, for 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 a Marxist approach right a, a, a post capitalism socialism or communism means that production is organized uh, by sort of conscious you know human thought rather than uh, the production of value right rather than this sort of fetishized relationship to the economy that, oh, well, things need to make money and then money goes there and, and work, you know, you need to have wage. If you, you know, for Marx, this analysis of capitalism is so we can see how production actually works and how, could be organized uh, in a different way. And again, this is something that I really get out of the degrowth movement is you can look at production from a conscious human perspective and we can think about how we might make collective decisions to say we don't we have to stop pulling coal out of out of the earth right or we have to take certain forms of production offline because they're too wasteful they're too un, they're too uh, uh, devastating even if they're profitable right that there are other values at stake here and it's it's quite urgent uh, to 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 recognize this and further I think that you know, what degrowth says is it gets characterized as this kind of uh, sort of austerity movement of you know people who really want to you know just self abnegate and right and 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 go to live some sort of primitive lifestyle and I don't think that's the case at all uh, I think what they what they recognize is 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 quite similar to William Morris that there's a qualitative dimension of life right that um, that 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 if that people would be happy to to work less, to produce less, if they had more time to do the things that were meaningful to them, to spend the time with the people around them who are meaningful to them, um, without simply uh, producing more and, and acquiring more and accumulating more. That that doesn't actually realize what those people want out, what most people want out of life, and realistically, what most people are going to get out of life. And that, that, and to me, this is, um, you know, there's a lot of resonance with, with the, the, with, with my research on, on Luddism there. Um, and I, I, I am kind of eager to take this concept and to think about how it might articulate with these other kinds of, of movements that I, that I think are, are interesting and have some promise. 
Yeah, great. I mean, without wanting to focus too much on the horrible term thought leaders again, but I mean, it feels like um, the this this contemporary turn towards a kind of Marxist leadism that you advance is. There's a couple of other thinkers at the moment who've published work that's kind of resonant, as you touched on. You mentioned Phil Jones. I mean, is there anyone else that listeners should be looking out for or reading? Absolutely. <laughs> let me. Um, uh, yeah. Let me. Let me think for a moment. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of really, um, uh, really interesting, um, which is kind of popular, but also really sophisticated kind of critiques of the world of work today that I think are super relevant. Um, Amelia Horgan's uh, book, uh, I think Lost in Work is, 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 is a really nice one, a very, very accessible one. Um, uh, Sarah Jaffa's work, uh, journalistic work um, is, is really, is also super theoretically conformed and theoretically informed and really, uh, really, really valuable, um, I think, uh, in comprehending the, the state of work today and, and, and also thinking about how it could be different. Um, you mentioned Astra Taylor. I think her, her work is also uh, really phenomenal. Um, Jason Sadowski is uh, uh, another academic who uh, proudly fla- flies the flag of, of Luddism as well. Um, and he has a lot of great essays, both academic essays and popular essays. He's super prolific um, uh, on, on the politics of technology and work today. And he also has a, a really nice podcast um, called This Machine Kills uh, that he co-hosts. And I think that's um, another one that's uh, absolutely um, worth checking out. Um, so I think those are, those are all like really, uh, great places to start. Um, but I think it's also, um, um, oh yeah, there's, um, Logic Magazine, uh, for those, those of people who are interested in sort of the politics of particularly digital technology. I mean, I think some of the best sort of analysis and criticism, um, of, uh, of, of digital technology, particularly from in the world of work, but not, not exclusive to that is being published in logic. And, and they've also started putting out books as well, which are, which are really, um, really kind of original and, and really interesting. So I would, I would also really highly, um, recommend that. Um, there's a couple of recent, uh, books that are really Good critiques of automation discourse from a from from a deeply Marxist perspective. Uh, you have Aaron Beninav's um, "Automation in the Future of Work," which is, I think, um, a really uh, um, really kind of resets the agenda around thinking about automation and 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 what what a Marxist analysis uh, of of it and and politics that might flow forward from it would look like. And then um, Jason Smith's Smart Machines and Service Work is uh, is a super, uh, just a really, um, again, kind of path-breaking understanding of and, and contextualization of the rise of um, the sort of uh, digital forms of service work and service work in general in the context of kind of larger capitalist restructuring. I don't know if they would characterize themselves as uh, Luddites, but I, I really do find um, all of these authors to to have work that really, to me, has, has really um, influenced me um, and inspired me and, and, and I think resonates um, with the kind of project that I'm interested in. 
Yeah, I guess you could use your really great term luddish, which I really liked. Um, and well, as well, of course, as your book, which is really, really rich, I'd urge listeners to listen to uh, to read it because we haven't covered half of what's in there, even though it's quite a slim book. Um, so what are you working on now? Uh, well, I'm working on a few things. I've, uh, as I mentioned, I'm kind of doing some research into uh, work from home and the, the resistance that's happening there. Um, and I'm also, um, maybe embarrassingly, sort of uh, starting to do a lot of research on um, sort of blockchain. Um, I'm not, I would say I'm, I have a very... Uh, Luddite perspective on. I'm not in favor of it, but I but I see it as as, as somewhat significant in that um, it, it has a, a, a widespread influence, blockchain and, and, and kind of cryptocurrency on uh, digital culture. In some ways, a kind of last redoubt of techno optimism uh, in that world. Um, and so um, I'm really interested in how in its influence and its impact on on digital cultures um, and and uh, as well as, you know, all the hype that's behind it. Maybe, you know, tomorrow we wake up and the whole thing's crashed like a house of cards. And I, I won't shed a single tear if that's the case. But um, but until that happens, you know, I think it, we, it, we, it, it, you know, it's something that I want to understand better um, and understand, that, you know, how it's uh, changing politics around digital technology as well. Cool. Well, hopefully when you've got that sorted, you can come and explain it to me because <laughs> it's beyond me at the moment. Um, well, that's great. Thanks very much. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure to to talk with you.